the Christian life is the greatest, the most blessed life in the world. To have Christ and to have nothing else going for you in this world, far better than to have everything going for you and to not have Christ. I love the way an old preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, put it. He said, the Christian life is not a task. The Christian life alone is worthy of the name life. This alone is holy and righteous and pure and good. You, Christian, are on the noblest road the world has ever known. The Christian life is the greatest life, the most blessed life. But we're also going to see in our passage what hinders so many people from recognizing that fact and why it is that so many of us here who are Christians often fail to feel it. I mean, why, why does the Christian life sometimes feel like a task, sometimes feel like a duty? Maybe you hear something like the Christian life is the greatest life, and you say, I know that's the right answer, but it doesn't connect right now with my heart. Jesus has helped for us today. So, let's remember where we left off last week. If you were there, you remember that Jesus has just cast out a demon from a man who was mute. And in response to that, verses 15 and 16 of Luke chapter 11 say this, which are going to be important for our passage today. So you can look down or listen along. Some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So there are two groups of people here. One group, when they see Jesus, miracle, they look at him and they say, you're demonic. And another group looks at him and says, hey, give us another sign. Show us something greater to show you're true. So last week, Jesus addressed the first group. And in our passage today, Jesus is going to address the second group. But before we get there, there's a certain woman in the crowd that Jesus is speaking to who feels compelled to say something. So look with me at verse 27. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. This woman is so caught up with the greatness of Jesus, the one who casts out demons, the one who teaches with authority, that she says, man, what would it be like to have a son like that? Except she doesn't only think it or say it to a few people next to her, she gets everyone's attention. She says it loud enough so that the crowd hears her say this, blessed is your mother, Jesus. And she uses this significant word, blessed which we've seen in the Gospel of Luke before. It's not just a vague religious word. It means something like supremely happy, highly favored. Jesus, how favored, how happy your mother is, how great her life must be. And it's always risky to shout something to Jesus from the crowd, isn't it? Because he's not afraid to correct you, which he does here in verse 28. So look with me. But he said... Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's amazing. 
Jesus culture had its own vision of the blessed life, just like ours does. When many people in America think, what makes for blessing? They think of healthy families and expensive cars and good vacations and a lot of money and girlfriends and boyfriends, hashtag blessed. <laughs> when people in Jesus' day thought about the blessed life, they thought, thought often in more religious terms. You were blessed to be a Jew. You are blessed to be a child of Abraham. You were blessed to be the mother of the Messiah, surely. Jesus says no. Neither one of those visions is right. Comfort and material security does not equal blessing. Being the mother of the Messiah does not equal blessing. Instead, those who hear the word of God and keep it, that equals blessing. In other words, the Christian life equals blessing. Blessed are they who really, though imperfectly, strive to hear Jesus' word and live it out. If you're a Christian here today, that's you. Can you imagine what social media would look like if people embraced this idea of blessing? God, help me hold on to him through really bad depression today. I am blessed. God gave me courage to share the gospel with a neighbor today. I'm blessed. God strengthened me to go serve my family when I came home dead tired from work. And I didn't get the thanks I was looking for, but man, am I blessed. Because he gave me help to hear his word and to strive to keep it. The blessed life is the obedient life. Why is that? Why is that the blessed life? Why is that the greatest life? We could go on for a long time with the reasons, but I mean, for starters, those who live it have a good and powerful Father in heaven. They know what it feels like to have their humanity restored little by little as God intended it to be. They have a family of Christ followers surrounding them. They know the joy of a forgiven heart and the peace of a clean conscience. And as we're going to see through the rest of our passage, most of all, they know the greatest person in the universe, Jesus Christ. That is the blessed life. Not because it is the most comfortable life. It is not. But because it's the only life with Jesus. So... Why wouldn't everybody want this life? Why wouldn't all the crowd, when they hear that, come flocking to hear and to keep Jesus' word? Because there are roadblocks, there are hindrances to seeing that this is the greatest life. Mm -hmm. And Jesus and the rest of our passage is going to focus on one of them. So, look at verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Let's try to answer two questions from this passage. Number one, what's so evil about seeking a sign? I mean, Jesus' ministry is filled with signs. If you're reading the book of Acts with us, signs are all over the place. They authenticate the gospel. So what's What's wrong with seeking a sign? And number two, what in the world is the sign of Jonah? So first, what's wrong with seeking a sign? 
Ross touched on this a little bit last week, and I think he's right on. You remember, like we read earlier, that the people who are seeking a sign from Jesus, they're doing it right after Jesus has just cast a demon out of a man who is mute. Who knows how long this guy couldn't talk. And then all of a sudden, with a word from Jesus, he has words. And some people look at that and they say, okay, give us a sign. Give us a sign that you're from God. And he had just given them a sign. And he had given them so many signs, hadn't he? At this point in the Gospel of Luke, and so many of the crowds know this, Jesus has healed paralytics. Jesus has cleansed lepers. Jesus has raised people from the dead. They're like someone going down the highway looking for their exit, and sign on the shoulder says, hey, exit here, digital above the highway, exit here, GPS, exit here, and they say, if I had a sign. <laughs> it is not necessarily evil always to seek a sign from Jesus. Not if it comes from a humble heart that's asking and seeking and knocking and not demanding anything from him. But it is evil to seek a sign from Jesus if Jesus has given you a sign and you refuse to read it. Mm. Right. So why would they do that? Why would the people in this crowd refuse to accept the signs that Jesus has already given? He gives us a clue in verse 29 where Jesus calls them an evil generation. Jesus does not say that this generation is an ignorant generation, or this generation just needs more facts before they can make an informed decision about Jesus. He says that they're an evil generation, which means ultimately that the problem is not in the signs, the problem is not in Jesus or his teaching, the problem is in the hearts of the people who cannot see him, will not see him. At some deep level, the people listening to Jesus don't want Jesus. Do you remember what that's like? I do. You hear the word of Jesus, and you may have some reason for pushing it aside or not really getting serious about it. Ultimately, because down deep, and God helped you see this later, you didn't want to. You didn't want his authority over your life. That would, that would mean everything would have to change. It would mean his word would set the agenda. And Jesus is saying, come, it's going to be blessed. It's going to be the greatest life. But somewhere, somehow, they couldn't believe it. They, they didn't think that changing this for the Jesus way was going to be better. Far safer then for them to say, I need more proof. Far more comfortable for them to say, but give us something unmistakable, something better than what you just did. But Jesus knows their thoughts, and he knows their souls. And he knows that this is not mainly a head problem, but a heart problem. And so he says to them, no sign will be given to this generation. Except the sign of Jonah. So, what does Jesus mean by the sign of Jonah? He, he talks a little more about it in the next verse, verse 30. Look with me. He says... For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So why does Jesus bring up Jonah here? I mean, Jonah is not 
the most admirable of prophets in the Old Testament. When God first tells him to go and preach to Nineveh, he runs the opposite way. And when he finally does go and preach to Nineveh and the Ninevites repent, Jonah's angry about it. And Jesus is saying, okay, so I'm like Jonah. In what way? What does he mean by that? Well, there's another part of Jonah's life that the people listening to Jesus would have remembered. Anybody recall what that might be? Fish. A fish. <laughs> Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish. And then on the third day, God brought him out alive. It was like he was resurrected, even though it only looked like he died. Right. And more than that, it's likely that the Ninevites knew this about Jonah. They knew that this man preaching to them had been delivered by God from a fish. And so, man, what this guy says has got to be true. He became a sign to them of his truth. And now Jesus says, just as Jonah became a sign, so I will become a sign. I too will spend three days and three nights in the deepest darkness. Except I will not only appear to die, I really will die. Hmm. And then on the third day, I am coming out alive. Hmm. And that will be a sign to you that I am true. Hmm. Now, how is that a sign? How does it work as a sign? Because the resurrection shows that God the Father approved of Jesus. No man can raise himself from the dead. And if Jesus were a fraud, then the Father wouldn't have raised him. He would right. have let him lie there in the grave to show he's not true. Right. But the resurrection is the Father's everlasting amen yes. to everything that Jesus said and did. Yeah. It says, he is my beloved son and I will prove it by raising him from the dead. He really did die for sins. The cross really was effective. Anybody who comes to me now through him really does receive forgiveness of sins in his name. Yes. The, the resurrection is the sign of all signs. Yes. So, what if you're not a Christian here today? Or what if you are a Christian and you feel doubts and you say, I wasn't there for the resurrection. How is, how is that a sign to me that Jesus is true? Jesus knows that. And he still means for the resurrection to testify to his truth. So listen with me or look quickly with me at a couple of passages in the book of Acts. We're going to spend just a brief time here in Acts 17 and Acts 5 to show how this works. So in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is speaking to a group of people in the city of Athens, most of whom are skeptical about his message. And they hadn't been there to see the resurrection. But listen to what Paul says in verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Not only assurance to those who saw him with their eyes, but assurance to all. 
men and women of Athens, the resurrection is God's assurance to you that Jesus is true. Okay, so how does that work? Acts 5. In this scene, Peter and John are talking to the Jewish council. And here's what they say in verse 31. They say, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter and John say, we're witnesses. We saw him with our eyes. But there's a better witness to the resurrection. There's even a better situation for us who never saw Jesus raised with our own eyes. And that is, the Holy Spirit is witness. And one of the Holy Spirit's main job in this world, one of the main parts of his ministry, is to witness to the truth that Jesus is alive. Sometimes he does it through miracles, as we see frequently in the book of Acts. And every single miracle done in the name of Jesus is a little pointer saying, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He's the one who does this. Amen. But often, you see this in the book of Acts as well, the Spirit does not use miracles. Instead, he uses the preaching of the Word of God. And as people listen to the Word or read the Word, he comes in and opens the eyes of their hearts to see the glory of the risen Christ. And so maybe you're reading a, a, a passage in the scriptures or listening to a sermon or you're singing some song or you're talking with a friend and all of a sudden you see Jesus in a way that you haven't seen him before. He's radiant and he's awesome and he's glorious and he is alive. It's like somebody who is deaf seeing the sun for the first time. It's like somebody who, or someone, I messed that up, someone who's <laughs> deaf hearing music for the first time. Yeah. They could see the sun. That's not too miraculous. <laughs> or someone who's blind seeing the sun. They might not be able to explain all of how it worked, but they really do see it. They really do see the sun. They really do hear the music. If you're a Christian, you really do, with the eyes of your heart, see the glory of Christ. Yeah. And that's the Holy Spirit's work. And so, what should you do if you don't believe? Or if you're struggling with doubts, as has been true of me at various points in my Christian life. It may be that you don't need more information in your head, mainly, but more transformation in your heart, mainly. It may be that you need to see more clearly the glory of the risen Christ in the Word of God. And so, what if you asked God today, as I have needed to again and again, would you show me Jesus more clearly? And would you take away everything inside of me that keeps me from seeing Him? All right, back to our passage, the last part of it, last two verses. Jesus knows that the greatest of all signs is coming when he is going to rise from the dead. But he also knows that most of the people in the crowd that he is talking to are not going to see that sign for what it is. Even when Jesus comes out of the tomb, most of the people in our passage are not going to turn and begin hearing and keeping his word. 
And so in the last two verses, he unpacks more fully what he says in verse 29. This generation is an evil generation. And to do that, he's going to compare the people in front of him with two examples of people from the Old Testament who did respond to God's word, even though they had way less reason to do so. So we'll look at them both briefly together. Uh, Verses 31 and 32. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the queen of the south, if you're not familiar with her, she appears in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. She was a a Gentile queen, meaning not a Jew, and she probably lived over a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. But somehow, she heard about this king in Jerusalem named Solomon. And she heard that he had astounding wisdom. And so she packed up her bag. She brought a whole bunch of people with her. She traveled over a thousand miles just to hear this king speak. And when she heard him, she was amazed. She said, the half of it wasn't told me how great your wisdom is. This is the wisdom of God. She heard Solomon and she heard greatness. The people of Nineveh, to return to the story of Jonah now, they were one of Israel's ancient enemies, which is probably the reason that Jonah, when God told him, go to Nineveh, goes the opposite way. Because he knows God is gracious and will forgive them if they turn. It's also why he was swallowed by a fish. But when Jonah finally goes to Nineveh and he warns the people of judgment, revival comes. Everybody repents from the high king down to the lowliest servant. God's judgment relents because when the people of Nineveh heard the message of Jonah, this man who had come from a fish, they heard the greatness of God. And now Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Don't you love how unashamed Jesus is? And yet how humble. He's not boasting. It's just true. He can look back at two of the Old Testament's great figures and he can say, the one who you're looking at now is greater than them. Something greater is here. He says, yes, Solomon was a wise king, but I am wisdom incarnate. Solomon could solve riddles, but I can read your heart. And everything Solomon told you, he learned from me. And yes, Jonah was a miraculous prophet. But Jonah came only to preach judgment, and I came to take your judgment on the cross. Jonah went down to the fish because he was disobedient, but I'm going to go down to the grave because I'm obedient. And then I'm going to trample death to save you. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. So why couldn't they see it? The queen and the Ninevites give the answer. 
It's not ultimately that the crowd listening to Jesus could not see his greatness, but that on some level they would not see his greatness. Right. And so Jesus says on the day of judgment there would be no excuse for them. Okay now, my guess today is that most of us here are not seeking a sign from Jesus to see if he is really God. Many of us already believe in Jesus and we believe that the life he calls us to is the blessed life, it is the greatest life. But we do need help feeling it sometimes, don't we? So let me offer just a final observation based on these stories of the Queen and Jonah related to us now. Why did the Queen of the South travel over a thousand miles to Jerusalem? Only because Solomon was there and he had divinely given wisdom. Why did the Ninevites repent? Only because Jonah preached to them and they saw in Jonah the greatness of a messenger of God? In other words, because they saw greatness, that's why they did what they did. The greatness of what they saw gave meaning to what they did. And the same exact thing is true in the Christian life. The Christian life is the greatest life, but 100% of its greatness relies on seeing the greatness of Christ. Lose sight of that, and it's as meaningless as traveling a thousand miles for nothing. So, when does the Christian life begin to feel like a duty or a task for you? When does Bible reading become a checkbox? When does prayer feel burdensome? When does obedience feel like a chore? For me, church, it is when the Christian life no longer has the greatness of Jesus at the center of it. How easy it is over time slowly for me to slowly treat the Christian life as if it were mainly a, th- a list of things that I do and not mainly a glorious person that I worship. That's right. And so how do you keep the greatness in the Christian life to wake up feeling this is not a task, this life is not a duty, this is the greatest life? Yeah. Let me just offer two final words in light of that. Number one, as I mentioned, and I'm preaching to myself here, treat the Christian life, orient the Christian life, less around the practices that you do and more around the person whom you worship. Yeah. The Christian life is not first and foremost reading the Bible, praying, evangelizing, giving, gathering with the church, and everything else that Jesus calls us to do. Right. The Christian life at the hub and at the center of it is the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Worshiping him is the Christian life. We read the Bible because that's where we meet him, not because it's just a religious thing to do. We gather here week by week, not because that's the Christian thing to do, but because it's where he meets us often in even greater measure than in our own personal times with him. We go out during the week and we share him because worship of Christ can't stay inside. It's got to go out. Yes. So all of the practices of the Christian life rest on the person of the Christian life. And it may be that just making that subtle switch in your mind, oh, I've got to read my Bible today, to... Oh, I've, I'm meeting with Jesus this morning. Yeah. Could make a difference. Yeah. And number two, when the greatness of Jesus burns dim in your heart 
and something else seems to be greater, whether it's over the pattern of a few weeks or months or whether it's a moment this afternoon, take a cue from the words of Jesus and say to your soul, something greater is here. Something greater, my soul, than comfort is here. Something greater than an extra hour of sleep is here. Mm. Something greater than another drink is here. Something greater than this or that relationship is here. God help me to see his greatness. And therefore, there's nothing greater than worshiping this Christ and seeking this Christ than belonging to this Christ. So let's pray together. Our good God, we thank you that what you call us to is not first a religious lifestyle, but a person. You came in the person of your son, God, to give us yourself, not mainly to give us instructions, but to show us your greatness, to call us to the life that is most blessed above all lives, even in the midst of discomfort and pain. And so I pray that you would give us grace to see it, to feel it. We need the greatness of Jesus to rise in our hearts afresh. We pray that now. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.